Hello, and welcome to the Nerdcast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Bitter Beakish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 87th episode of the Nerdcast, titled Never Break the Chain, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 3, in which his grace, King Stannis Baratheon, tells the Lannisters to get the hell off his lawn. And they respond in a multitude of ways, some smart, some uh, less so. You know, you always want to sing Jeff, and then I just hand you Fleetwood Mac l- lyrics on a platter, and you don't take the opportunity. I, I didn't realize I was, I had the, I thought my cue had already been extended, because I did the uh, A Star, A Star, Dancing in the East, or A Comet, A Comet, Dancing in the East from, from two episodes ago, so I wasn't sure if my, my cue was up yet. That's fair, that's fair. we got to get you on like a, a cyclical little schedule, just like, you know, <laughs> a little a little, a little chore wheel, but for singing. There we go. We'll have to do that sometime very soon. I can't wait to sing some more, guys. It's been so much fun singing for you all. <laughs> so, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warren of the West, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sea Lord of Bravos, Kelly, Warden of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, and this one actually spelled it out phonetically how I'm supposed to pronounce it. How I'm supposed to pronounce it. The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That's the five novels, three duck egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Snark Knight, a sworn sword, who asks, Your graces, who, in your opinion, is the lousiest, worst, most bad and ugly theater-level commander slash strategist in A Song of Ice and Fire? Like the person above the anti-Ender Wiggins, Sir Emery Florent, but obviously not the guy who puts Sir Emery in charge, Stannis, Stannis, Stannis Baratheon, done in the damp of the drowned god. Well, thank you so much for the question, and I'm going to turn that one over to you, Jeff, because this is more a military area question. Who is the lousiest, worst, most bad and ugly theater-level commander slash strategist in A Song of Ice and Fire? Balin fucking Greyjoy. We talked about this in Theon 1, or episode about that a few weeks ago. There is nothing about what he does in the North that is smart. Maybe there's a couple of tactical decisions that that he makes in terms of attacking the North when it's relatively undefended. But what are the total gains of his fledgling takings of the North? He's got the Stony Shore. He has Winterfell for about three minutes. He's got (laughs) Moat Kalen for about five minutes. He's got Deepwood Mott for about, you know, about a week or so because Asha is smart and she is able to take Deepwood Mott and hold it until Stannis arrives. Stannis, Stannis, Stannis arrives. Balon fucking Greyjoy is the worst theater commander in A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, you can make the argument that the Yunkish lords who are out fighting the Battle of Fire are real bad. Yes, they are terrible, but it's hard to identify just one of them because they are rotating commands like a bunch of fucking idiots outside of Marine because... That is what they've decided. They're going to have a different commander each day who's going to 
decide different things. So it's hard for me to pick a single bad theater commander at the Battle of Fire, except for that they're all bad, except for the uh, the Sellswords who are in the employ of Yunkai. So I'm going to have to say Balin Greyjoy, Victorian, I guess, if you want to go to like kind of a sub-theater commander. Like <laughs> the entirety of what he does during the Invasion of the North is he sees Smoke Kaelin, then he leaves his men there and sails away. That's it. That's that's all the Victorian does in the uh, in that particular portion of, of the Invasion of the North. Now he does do some smart things in the Battle of Fires. We're starting to see unfold in Tyrion's second chapter in Barrison's second chapter from the winds of winter but you know i i just i think balin balin is just terrible he's he's he doesn't have a strategic vision he doesn't have the bend he makes the stupid fucking decision to ask the lancers for an alliance after he's done what the lancers have already wanted he's not taking rob stark up on his offer too as we talked about in the m1 now as we also talked about as well in that chapter it's it's important that george kind of in cases what Balin Greyjoy is doing in terms of his personality, how he is reacting to his defeat of the Greyjoy Rebellion, how he has lost his sons, and this is the only way that he can kind of gain his vengeance against those who wronged him, even though they're all dead, so just, you know, fuck their sons up too and their children and stuff like that. So that's that's a lot of what I think in terms of what of who the worst commander is. It's a lot of people look at the worst commander as a person who loses battles. I don't think that's necessarily the case. That's more of a tactical level decision. I look at the worst theater-level commander is the person who loses wars. And Balin Greyjoy lost the fucking war before he even set sail from Pike. The end. End of story. Uh, well put. That was, He would be my obvious choice, too. And I think it's interesting that uh, Theon emphasizes that the one part of Balin's first war that went right, the attack on Lannisport, was Euron's plan. Right. And guess who's not around for Balon's second rebellion? Euron, the smart one in the family, who appears to have been the only one in his greater generation with brains. So yeah, Balon's plan fell apart from the get-go. Even Deepwood Mott really makes no sense to take, unless mm-hmm. you're using it as a forward base to take Winterfell, which doesn't seem to be what Balon had in mind. You know, if you're going to go for the, the northwestern part of the north, a base of operations, maybe Bear Island, because that's a place you can retreat to in need and works in terms of having long ships to resupply and you can tack up and down the coast. But yeah, I mean, really, the best explanation for Balin's terrible decisions is just George needed him to make them. Right. And, and he ends up at the bottom of the list by that, by that, uh, by virtue of that. And yeah, as you were saying, the Yonkish commanders are the other, other obvious choice, but you can't ide- identify a signal, a single ideological source for the bad decisions being made there. It's more just kind of this, this yawning gap right. that everything collapses. So even, even other commanders, you can point to bad moments like, you know, Ed Muir or, you know, even arguably Mance Raider. Overall, they have a much stronger hold on things than Balin Greyjoy. Right. And I think like the case of like Vance Raider and, and Edmir Tully, Edmir Tully does defeat the Lancers thinking that he's doing the right thing for his, you know, his superior officer in the form of Rob Stark. And Vance Raider, I mean, he did his best with what he had to work with. Overall, he's a very accomplished dude. He did. And and the fact that Stance Baratheon shows up out of, according to Vance Raider, fucking nowhere, I mean, kind of gives gives him a little bit of leeway to be like, OK, I, I understand. Like if you suddenly had if suddenly a bus hit you as you were crossing a deserted road. <laughs> Like, you don't blame the person because the bus is going 900 miles per hour down the road. I mean, but at the same time, you know, you know, these guys are all they get defeated. They do kind of fuck up some of their overall strategic objectives. But just Balin just overall fucks everything up, like everything. Like, there's no Ironborn conquest of the North. I mean, by the end of A Dance of Dragons, what, they have Torrens 
Torn Square. That's the last piece of territory that they hold in the north, essentially. Everything else has been recaptured by either the Boltons or by Stannis. So, good job, Balin. You've, you've gotten Torn Square, which has no connection to the sea. Quite the legacy, buddy. Well done. Well done. It's going to be so much fun to watch your downfall come Clash of Kings, although, of course, tragic as well because... You know, we see Theon go down, which I guess is not that tragic until we actually find pick up with him in Dance of Dragons. So it is tragic. I don't know what I'm saying. So uh, thank you to Frequent Interrogator, Sir Snark Knight, for this and all your other questions. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer on the podcast, you are welcome to subscribe to our Patreon as a sworn sword or higher at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. And, of course, our next Patreon goal is to achieve 1,000 patrons. When we hit that level, patrons will release a full analysis of The Forsaken, a.k.a. the Maybe the King's Moot Was a Bad Choice in Retrospect chapter from the perspective of Aaron Greyjoy. And we'll do as many goddamn parts as it'll take. Airhorn, 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 pew, 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 pew. Well, I can't do it. But that's our Patreon and our question for the week. Let's turn now to Tyrion's third chapter in A Clash of Kings. When we last left Tyrion, he had done good in shipping Jano Slint and Allardim off to the wall. But, you know, he does start to think that he has his own Allardim in the form of Bronn in his service. Does that make him Janice Lint? Let's see what happens when new opportunities for Tyrion to be the good guy or bad guy present themselves in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 3. Cersei, angry and in no mood to wait up for Varys, gives an Oscar-winning performance playing the part of a woman falsely accused of treason, infidelity, and incest. Treason is vile enough, she declared furiously, but this is barefaced naked villainy, and I do not need that missing eunuch to tell me what must be done with villains. <laughs> Delicious. The sweet, bitter, metallic taste of irony. Tyrion reads the two letters that Cersei received, comparing them, and realizes that they were exactly the same, albeit written with two different hands. Pysel explains that the first letter hit Castle Stokeworth, and then the next copy arrived at Castle Rosby. Littlefinger fingers his little pew beard, saying that if these small castles received letters, Stannis has likely sent letters to every lord in every castle and hold fast in Westeros. I want these letters burned. Every one, Cersei declared. No hint of this must reach my son's ears, or my father's. I imagine father's heard more than a hint by now, Tyrion said dryly. Doubtless Stannis sent a bird to Castle Rock, and another to Harrenhal. As for burning the letters, to what point? The song is sung, the wine is spilled, the wench is pregnant. And this is not as dire as it seems in truth. Cersei gets those green fury eyes and yells about how dare Stannis accuse her. Why, oh why would he ever allege that Cersei committed incest, adultery, and treason? Only because you're guilty, Tyrion thinks. Tyrion is in some amazed amusement over how huffy Cersei was over this letter, given how much of a fucking liar she is. He thinks that Cersei should become a mummer if they lose the war. Still, Tyrion, sitting as he is, says that Stannis wrote the letter to have a pretext to justify his, quote, rebellion. Don't like it right now, Tyrion, just letting you know. I will not suffer to be called a whore, Cersei shouts. Why, sister, he never claims Jaime paid you, Tyrion thinks. Tyrion reads the letter again and finds the phrase, done in the light of the lore. He thinks that kind of strange. Pysel says that this is a formality in the free cities, mostly. It doesn't mean anything more than, quote, done in the sight of gods and men. Littlefinger reminds everyone that Selyse took up with a, quote, red priest a few years back. Kind of an interesting detail, not knowing that Melisandre is a priestess, but Tyrion isn't about the trivia piece of it. He thinks they can use Stannis' newfound faith in R'hllor against him and have the high septum denounce Stannis as both a traitor and apostate. But Cersei, well, she's still thinking small. But first, we must stop this filth from spreading further. The council must issue an edict. Any man heard speaking of incest or calling Jaffa Bastard should lose his tongue for it. Grand Maester Pycelle, a fucking toady, says that this is prudent, but Tyrion knows better. <sighs> Folly, sighed Tyrion. When you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar. You're only telling the world that you fear what he might say. Ding! There's a top 50 of Song of Ice and Fire quote for you. 
Cersei, though, wants to know what they should do, and Tyrion's like, fucking nothing, sis. There's no proof of this incest, and besides, it totally never happened. And then strangely, Littlefinger, yeah, Littlefinger, he backs Tyrion's play, saying that trying to silence the people will only lead the people to spread the tale further. Instead, they should fight fire with fire. Cersei asks what Littlefinger means, and Peter, ever so kind, tells her that they, all they really have to do is just spread a tale, that Stannis' daughter is bastard-born. And that'll tickle the small folks' pickle. They love to believe that the lords are shit, especially a, quote, lord like Stannis, who isn't much loved and loves his honor. Cersei agrees cautiously, but then starts getting excited about who they're going to frame as Selyse's lover. She suggests one of the Florents, because she's got low-cunning people, and Tyrion says, what about Sir Axe of Florence, Selyse's uncle, because Tyrion's of middling cunning, but Littlefinger has a high degree of cunning. Well, Sir Axe might serve for Shireen's father, but in my experience, the more bizarre and shocking a tale, the more apt it is to be repeated. Stannis keeps an especially grotesque fool, a lackwith, a lackwit with a tattooed face. Pycelle goes all, how could we, the good people of the small council who just totally did a frame-up job of Ned Stark, and allow the massacre of his men possibly do such an unethical thing? But Littlefinger, being a little bit smarter, doesn't care. Littlefinger thinks it'll be a fucking hoot if they accuse Selyse of getting freaky with Patchface. Everyone would love to talk about that bizarre tale. But no, they're not going to spread it. Instead, Littlefinger will get the sex workers and his brothel to do the talking for them. They don't want to seem self-serving, you see. At that, Cersei asks where Varys is, and Pycelle talks about how he mistrusts Varys, who, spoiler alert, for once isn't wrong in his life to mistrust the guy who will crossboat the shit out of Pycelle at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Tyrion, though, knows where Varys is, but ain't about to let people know about that. So Tyrion excuses himself and says he needs to head out for a simple don't-trouble-yourself Cersei task. He's off to make a chain for Joffrey, just a little one. But Cersei isn't giving up on possessing Tyrion without a fight. If you think for a month that you could buy Joff's love with gifts, why surely I have the king's love as he has mine. And this chain, well, I believe he may one day treasure it above all others. And with that, Tyrion walks out of the small council chambers and meets up with Bronn. The sellsword escorts Tyrion back to the Tower of the Hand for a meeting with people, quote, waiting for Tyrion's pleasure. Waiting for my pleasure? I like the ring of that, Bronn. You almost sound a proper courtier. Next, you'll be kneeling. Fuck you, dwarf. That's Shay's task. Y you think that George liked writing all these Tyrion dialogue scenes in A Clash of Kings? Maybe just a little... We'll see. Tyrion hears Lady Tanda calling after him and he doubles his pace to get away from her and her attempts to wed her daughter Lollies to him, all the while pretending not to notice her. Yeah, but we've all been there before. Finally, he comes up to the Tower of the Hand and he winces as he mounts the steps and climbs the long stairs to his chambers. Inside, he finds Patrick Payne, a hero who fucking rules in there, but for now, he's kind of a bit of a nuisance to Tyrion and Tyrion thinks that Tywin inflicted him with Patrick Payne to annoy him. All mumbly now, Podrick gets Tyrion dressed for his meeting, and who is Tyrion meeting with? Why, every smith, armor, and ironmonger that Bronn was able to sweep together. Tyrion enters the meeting, announced as Hand of the King, and he loves that shit. Tyrion asks Podrick for a canvas sack, and Pod hands it to him. Tyrion then upends the bag. Its contents spilled onto the rug with a muffled thunk of metal on wood. I had these made at the Castle Forge. I want a thousand more, just like them. A smith by the name of Iron Belly, yes, that's his name, inspects the iron and determines it to be a, quote, mighty chain. Mighty, yes, Tyrion says, but it's too short. It needs to be longer. So Tyrion wants every forge in the city to work on this chain going forward, and he wants someone in charge of overseeing the work. Maybe Iron Belly? Well, maybe, but Cersei has ordered swords and armor constructed for all the gold cloaks she's hiring, and if they don't make the swords and armor, she's promised to smash their hands with hammers. Yay! Sweet Cersei. Always striving to make the small folk love us, Tyrion thinks. But Tyrion promises that no one's hands are going to get smashed. Iron Belly asks how they're going to find enough iron for the chain, and Tyrion says that Littlefinger will pay for it, hoping that he can count on the Master Coin for that much. And the City Watch will assist in getting more iron. They will even melt down every horseshoe if it comes to that. 
Then some rich asshole master armorer comes forward saying that this task is beneath his station. He makes beautiful swords and armor, and this is a job for fucking peasants. Tyrion asks this bro's name, and he says his name is Solorium. He will make a demon's head helmet for Tyrion. A demon's head, thought Tyrion thought ruefully. Now what does that say about me? Tyrion then says in what will prove to be a yet ironic early clash statement that he plans to fight the rest of his battles from this chair he's sitting on. He needs the iron links, not a helmet. Again, irony. Regardless, they're all to make the chain or wear chains. Then he dips out of the chambers. Then he dips out of his chambers. Outside, it's Bronn again, and they're off to a predetermined location. Inside his litter, Tyrion reflects on how he had carpenters building fishing boats, had opened the king's wood to hunters, and sent the gold cloaks to forge, again, which of course means against steel, food to the west and south. But everyone looks at him accusingly. They make their way down Aegon's high hill, and Tyrion thinks that Cersei was short-sighted about the letter Stannis sent. Without proof, his accusations were nothing. What mattered was that he had named himself a king. And what would Renly make of that? They cannot both sit the Iron Throne. Tyrion pushes the curtain back and looks around, seeing his black ear escorts and Bronn out front clearing the way. He plays a, quote, game in trying to guess the informers from the regular old small folk. He decides the least suspicious looking were the informers, the most suspicious looking the innocent. He then takes a nap. When he wakes, he finds himself at a two-story building that Bronn knows to be a brothel. Bronn asks what they're doing here and Tyrion's like, bro, what do you normally do at a brothel? To Bronn's laughter and question about whether Shay isn't enough anymore. Well, she isn't, Tyrion lies. Besides, the sex workers here are fit for a king. Is the boy old enough, Bronn asks. Not Joffrey, Robert. This house was a great favorite of his. Although Joffrey may be indeed be old enough. An interesting notion, that. Tyrion says Bronn and the boys can have some fun, but it's expensive, just FYI. He just needs one man who knows where, where he is to grab up everyone when Tyrion is done at this brothel. Inside, Tyrion is introduced to a Summer Islands woman by the name of Shataya, the madam of this establishment. She asks for his name, but Tyrion's like, no names, please, thanks. They pass into the building, and Tyrion asks if any of the girls are available. Shataya ushers him on, and they pass through the usual goings-on. An old man playing happy music on pipes, a Tyroshi bouncing a buxom young girl on his lap, two sex workers playing tiles. Shataya suggests the dark-skinned girl saying that she's 16. This causes Tyrion to think of his first time with Taisha and how she was younger than 16. What a wretched fool you are, dwarf. Shataya then goes on to say that the dark-skinned girl was her own daughter, and yeah, stop looking at me that way, Tyrion. This is a no-judgment zone. In the Summer Islands, there is no shame in the pillow house. Many girls were sent there for a few years after their flowering to honor the gods. When Tyrion the skeptic asks what the gods have to do with any of this, Shataya replies that the gods made bodies and souls. They also gave sexual desire. So, the Summer Islanders worship the gods in that fashion. Tyrion, sarcastic, says that he would be more religious if he could, quote, pray with his cock. Yeah, lovely Tyrion. All the same, he'll take Shataya's daughter. They meet at the foot of the stairs, and the girl introduces herself as Alayaya. Oh, we got the name right. She takes Tyrion's hand and guides him up the stairs and then down a hall where the sounds of sex emanate from every room. This causes Tyrion's trouser shark to start swimming, if you know what I mean. They reach a room, enter it, and Tyrion looks at the erotic carvings on the wall. He says that Alayaya is beautiful, but he's most interested in her tongue. Alayaya says her tongue will please him as she's been trained from an early age. So Tyrion asks, what are they going to do now? If my lord will open the wardrobe, he will find what he seeks. Tyrion kisses Alayaya's hand and heads in. Alayaya closes the door behind him and Tyrion grabs a panel and pushes it aside. He finds hollow space behind the walls and then reaches out to grasp a metal, a metal rung. He starts climbing down the tunnel and out come, and comes out of the bottom to find a man holding the candle and it's Varys. And boy does Varys look odd. A scarred face and a stubble of dark beard showed under his spiked steel cap. And he wore mail over boiled leather, dark and short sword at his belt. Varys asked if Tyrion found Shataya's establishment to his liking, and yeah, Tyrion did. Almost too much. Tyrion asks if Shataya can be trusted, and Varys says, well, he doesn't trust anyone. 
but Shatai is grateful to Tyrion for ridding her of Allardim, so she probably won't betray him? Probably? They make their way down the tunnel and Tyrion notices that Vara's master of disguise smells different and even walks differently in his guise. Tyrion says he's a big fan of Varys' costume and Varys is all like, can't go out on my own without a column of knights around me. He has to go out of the Red Keep in disguise. Tyrion comments that he didn't see any of Cersei's spies following him and Varys says, yeah, sure hope not. Some of those spies are his spies and he'd hate to think if they got sloppy. Still, Tyrion hopes that his frustrated sexual hearings will have been worth the climb down and Varys says, well, maybe one of Cersei's spies will come into the brothel, but probably not. And then Tyrion has a question. How is it that a brothel happens to have a secret entrance? The tunnel was dug for another king's hand, whose honor would not allow him to enter such a house openly, Varys says. Shataya has closely guarded this knowledge of its existence. And yet you knew of it? Little birds fly through many a dark tunnel. They come out of the trap at the back of a stable under Rhaenys' hill. Tyrion mounts a piebald gelding, commenting on how old this horse is. And yeah, it's an old horse, Varys says, but it won't cause notice. Anyways, Tyrion, let's get this cloak on you to make you look like a child. Varys is very keen on ensuring that they go unnoticed, a boy in an old cloak on his father's horse going about his father's business. That being said, Varys tells Tyrion that he should go to Shataya's by night going forward. I plan to, after today. At the moment, though, Shay awaits me. Ah, the old go to the brothel to feign having sex with a sex worker so you can go to the you see your other sex worker trick. Works every time. Shay had been put up at a walled manse to the northeast corner of King's Landing, as far away from the Red Keep as possible, seemingly, and due to the danger, Tyrion hadn't visited her. As Varys saddles his horse, he talks about the council meeting and how Stannis has crowned himself. Yeah, well, Varys knows this. Stannis also accuses Cersei of incest. How do you find that out, Sir Tyrion wonders? Perhaps he read a book and looked at the color of a bastard's hair as Ned Stark did and John Aaron before him. Or perhaps someone whispered it in his ear. Varys laughs and he isn't giggling for once. It's a deep throat chuckle and man, Varys really goes full method actor, doesn't he? Tyrion asks if Varys told Stannis and Varys slash Shaggy says it wasn't me. Tyrion asks if he would admit if he admitted if he told Stannis and Varys says <laughs> no, but he's not likely to betray such a secret. He's kept it for a long time and the timing isn't right. Regardless, the truth wasn't all that difficult to suss out. Robert had eight bastards and regardless of the mother's hair color, every child had raven black hair. Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen did not. Tyrion shook his head. If she had borne only one child for her husband, it would have been enough to disarm suspicion. <sighs> but then she would not have been Cersei. So if Varys wasn't the one who told on Cersei, who snitched? A traitor, Varys says. Littlefinger? Varys didn't say that. He implied it. Tyrion let the eunuch help him out. Lord Varys, sometimes I feel like you are my best friend I have in King's Landing, and sometimes I feel like you are my worst enemy. How odd. I think quite the same of you. And that is A Clash of Kings Tyrion 3. Kind of a fun chapter after kind of the horrors of the slaughter from last week's chapter. And I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy the change of tone and the change of pace. But I first want to hear what you thought of this chapter, Evan. So if Tyrion 1 and Tyrion 2 were about Tyrion dealing with internal threats to his power within the Lannister Coalition, Tyrion 3 offers the first taste of how he'll deal with external threats to that coalition's existence. Most of the Lannister fury and industry we've seen expended so far has been aimed at the Starks, Tullys, and the people of the Riverlands. In other words, we've mostly seen it in a military context as opposed to a political one, because in political terms, the Lannisters have been on their heels since Ned's execution, reacting rather than setting the terms. Stannis's threat is the inverse, right? It's a political one, not a military one. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> but it could become one if left unchecked. As such, Tyrion is operating on a different stage in Tyrion 3, even as he's still hampered from within by Cersei, as their dysfunctional relationship constantly works to upend Tyrion's preparations 
and push him in darker directions emotionally at the same time. I totally agree with that analysis. I, you know, Tyrion 3 reads like that one part comedy where Tyrion and Cersei are interacting and then also one part conspiracy thriller at the end of this, mm-hmm. this chapter where Tyrion and Varys are interacting. The small council scene has Tyrion at his most wittiest in his narrative, speaking lies and then thinking the truth, making Cersei very mad online, but then regarding Littlefinger as a much more dangerous player than he suspected previously. And I like to think of the first half of the chapter as more like plot-oriented, driving the plot forward in A Clash of Kings, driving Tyrion as the protagonist, his story forward, showing Lannister countermaneuvers to the events from A Clash of Kings Davos 1. Then in the second part of the chapter, we get leveled up to engage the endgame plot of A Clash of Kings, with Tyrion speaking with the metalworkers of King's Landing to, quote, make a chain. Why a chain? Well, Tyrion's not going to let his inner monologue betray that pivotal plot <laughs> twist. But then the third part of the chapter, my favorite part of the chapter, as you guys can probably tell, reads as George R. R. Martin kind of pouring one out to his fans. We get all sorts of evidence for various thi- for various theories, one that Littlefinger's the traitor who leaked information to Stannis about Cersei's inf- incest, while also setting up another mystery, which we'll discuss at the end of this podcast. Who built the tunnel to Shatai's brothel? Who was that hand of the king? It's Tywin. But also in the later, latter part of this chapter, we're also seeing the true shape of the Game of Thrones. And I think that unveiling of the real game becomes a feature of Tyrion and Varys' conversations in Clash and a little bit less in A Storm of Swords. And that really begs the question of why. Why is Varys willing to reveal parts of his true self to Tyrion? And you guys know me, I'm going to argue that I suspect that George is seeing the groundwork for Varys' attempt to turn Tyrion against his family in favor of Aegon Daenerys. And Varys' Varys' weapon is information, right? That's the primary weapon that he has. He doesn't have armies. He's got... He's got whispers he's got little birds that are able to infiltrate the red keep in various parts of the city of king's landing and my read is that Vars is hoping that this kind of drip 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 of information that he's pushing out to Tyrion can win the dwarf to his side intellectually and hopefully at some point down the road in terms of his loyalty to the better cause than house lannister it's that rush of the narrative expanding right the sense of this political world growing within Tyrion's pov and in the war in Westeros as a whole, and all these different characters called like moths to a flame to tie their stories to Tyrion's and tie their rise to power to his rise to power. And yet at the same time, it's not necessarily exposing more truths, but just opening more questions. Like you're left coming out of this chapter really with more mysteries than when you went in, I feel like. And I think I feel like that's deliberate on George's part. Even though we are starting with this this very blunt, open moment of truth telling on Stannis's part. Right away we see the political impact of Stannis's letter exposing the hidden secret throughout book one and it's interesting it's not even so much that it wins people to Stannis' side it does for a few but the main effect is that it just forces the Lannisters to respond to it and they don't all respond well (laughs) like Cersei is going just full Cersei here like her rage is somehow completely genuine even as every word out of her mouth is a lie (laughs) even as she knows this is the truth she's still genuine in her outrage because how dare you question me i'm cersei lannister queen of the seven kingdoms yes that's entirely true but so what i'm in charge and she she's so convinced of her own correct place atop everybody that the rage is genuine Mm -hmm. like she she is declaring stannis to be a villain out of one side of her mouth while demanding a harvest of traitorous tongues out of the other side She is hypocritical and short-sighted and just painfully obvious. Like, (laughs) when Littlefinger brings up the idea, like, let's put our own counter-rumor to, you know, to muddy the waters, she brings up incest again as the the vessel for that story out of nowhere. So (laughs) that just exemplifies how poorly she's been keeping this secret, that she's just so blatant about her fixation on this. And Tyrion, meanwhile, is, is just watching with outright amusement as the chapter starts. He's just sitting back and taking it in like... 
Wow. <laughs> I'm not even mad. He's just stunned by the extent of her performance. And it just so perfectly captures the intimacy to the Tyrion Cersei relationship that I've talked about before, where he knows her inner life so well that he can't help but enjoy the disconnect between that and the face she's putting on. But it also captures Tyrion's core cynicism because this is kind of a big moment. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, his family's dirty laundry has been just publicly aired in a way that could bring them all down. And he is he's not even remotely taking it seriously. He's just shrugging. And you could say this is Tyrion being the pragmatist. As he says, you know, Stannis doesn't offer any proof. This doesn't necessarily put him ahead of Renly. The, you know, he has to actually act on this. And, and we do see that 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 more prag- pragmatic side to Tyrion, the the relative gentle lion in the room, when he's pushing back on Cersei's edict of silence. Unlike the, the Toady Pycelle who sucks when he's just like, <laughs> yes, yes, a very prudent measure to cut off everyone's tongues. Yes, 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 yes. But we still see Tyrion's own blind spots at work because his plan is to do nothing. And that's not good enough either. And that's very revealing. Littlefinger is the one who has to step in and say, hey, we do need to do something about this. Yes, cutting off everyone's tongues is ridiculous. But we need a counter narrative. We need a way to muddy the waters. So in the eyes of the small folk and the merchants and everyone else, this is just nobles trading insults rather than Stannis offering the cold, clear water Mm -hmm. of truth to explain what's going on. And Littlefinger is 100% right about that. Let's give him credit. (laughs) Tyrion wouldn't have bothered. Because Tyrion is convinced that he cannot be loved due to his disability and his experiences with Tywin and Taisha and so on. So in his mind, instinctively, he's like, why bother? Why would we try to explain ourselves? They're going to hate us anyway. So in, in Cersei and Tyrion, I think we can see people who have learned very different reactions to being insulted and uh, ignored by the world. Cersei overreacts and Tyrion underreacts. And both of them are hiding behind the armor they've made. And both of them, by the time they reach a dance with dragons, are just going to crack behind that armor and just come oozing out. I think it's a great point. I, th- I think you, you brought up the fact that, you know, Cersei and Tyrion are overreacting and underreacting to this. But Littlefinger's also reacting to this as well. What is Littlefinger's driving motivations we talked about back in, in a Game of Thrones, Catelyn 5 and 6? We talked about how Littlefinger is driven by this hatred of this of the noble classes. And what does this, this counter-narrative do but destabilize Westeros and make all of these nobles look like fucking laughingstocks to the entirety of the country. And that's how Littlefinger ends up playing the game, is that he ends up setting people against each other in order to climb the ladder of chaos, as was said in season three of the show, which I like that that, that scene a lot. I think, you know, the other thing, too, is is when we're talking about, like, Cersei, I, I understand why she's overreacting here. I, I'm not defending her overreaction, but what's how she how she like frame this? She frames this in as a way of she doesn't want this quote lie to reach the eyes of Tywin, her father, and Joffrey, her son. And my question is: Is this a psychological reaction by Cersei? Is she attempting to prevent this information from reaching men and men being represented of the patriarchy who could physically hurt her? You know, Cersei's upbringing has Tywin's daughter was a fairly unhappy one from all from all we know and in feast cersei will recall as if it's a memory what happened to titus's mistress which is tywin's father after lord titus lancer died getting marched naked through the seats through the streets of king's landing while having to call herself a whore over and over again uh, so too you know kevin lannister who is tywin's protege if you want to call it that will try to emulate big brother in punishing cersei for her sexual crimes in quotation marks crimes although some of them probably are, ostensibly to politically neuter her. But as Kevin is going to reflect over and over again in that Dance of the Dragons, in that the Dance with Dragons epilogue, the honor of House Lannister was at stake. I had to do something. So you could see why Cersei's a little bit freaked out that Tywin is going to find out about this. He's got a very deeply 
hashtag problematic view of women and hashtag problematic view of what to do with women who are operating outside of the boundaries of what he considers to be within the honor of his house. And then you've got her son, Joffrey. I mean, Joffrey is still early on in his infamy here, but as Cersei notes in Tyrion's first chapter, he's very unwieldy. He's not, Cersei is not able to control him. And he's becoming more physically violent and psychopathic, as we saw in Sansa's last chapter in A Game of Thrones, and as we saw the threats emanating to in Sansa's first chapter in A Clash of Kings. So all that background is showing us that Cersei's fears of Tywin or Joffrey finding out about a relationship with Jamie and the parents of her children, they're, they're not precisely baseless you make great points i mean cersei might fear being stripped of power in some way by tywin and joffrey before she fears physical violence from them but on the other hand the fact that they could potentially try to strip power from her is rooted in their physical advantage over her in a society that privileges male violence over women as a way of Mm -hmm. keeping women in line and that's something we see throughout cersei's story that no matter how much power she accumulates, it can be stripped away very quickly from her on that basis, and her body can be weaponized and turned against her, as we see with the walk and a dance with dragons. And if there's something very telling that she has to fight off both generations at once like hmm. this, you know what I mean? That she has to both keep off the younger and older generation off her sure. secret. Because if Cersei was a man, she would have long passed beyond Tywin's authority by now. Like, Ty- Tywin being her father wouldn't really mean anything right. in terms of making Cersei... Like, that, that's why Tywin ha- kind of has to try to wheedle Jamie and try to convince Jamie to be on his side and try to bribe him with the sword because he needs Jamie's consent to be involved in any of this mm-hmm. really more than he needs Cersei's. And also Joffrey is, is just a loose cannon in a way that... You know, he Joffrey doesn't really respect anybody, but Joffrey definitely respects men more than women. Mm-hmm. I think I think we can easily say that. So, I mean, none of this is to suggest that this makes Cersei, of course, a sympathetic character or makes it sure. okay that Cersei, what Cersei wants to do with powers, things like cut people's tongues off. But I do think George is always working to show how Cersei specifically functions as as a woman in power and how that f- makes it different than than the than how the men in her family function because of course we spend a lot of time focusing on how the Lannister men function and i definitely think George is trying to show us the differences in terms of how the world treats Cersei what what George i think is emphasizing in in, in Cersei is again that she's she's a terrible person no doubt but also that she has not reasons not rationales not excuses but Reasons, at least at least integral to Cersei, that she is going to want to kind of stymie this information from reaching these people who could potentially inflict a lot of violence on her. Cersei is both a, a uniquely bad person on her own right, who was murdering people when she was ten, and a product of the system. I think. Yeah. I understand. I get this instinct. I think a lot of times when we talk about a character, we feel the the need to choose one of those two. Like, yeah. no, this is the uniquely bad person, or no, this person is a product of their environment. It's like, no, it's always going to be both. You mm-hmm. you always bring what you bring to the table, and you are also always going to be stamped all over you by by the by the forces that shape you. And it's it's difficult to tease the two apart, but I think it's always important to acknowledge both. But uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about you know Stannis's truth telling mm-hmm. about you know this this letter is kind of the one uh, truth in this this chapter full of lies. But it is, it is worth noting that we're already seeing the, the Lord of Light as kind of a political albatross for his cause. The Tyrion seizes on this immediately. Hey, done, done in the Lord of Light. That's an interesting phrase. That's, that's foreign to Westeros. How can we, how can we seize on this? So it's, it's already starting to, you know, be a, a chain wearing Stannis down. And speaking of chains, uh, award winning transition. Hell of a transition. 
so this chapter also shows us Tyrion's response to Stannis' letter in the form of the chain he starts to build. Although, of course, George can't tell us that that's what it is without giving the game away. That's the great little game George is playing with this part of the chapter, with Tyrion's chain. For the rest of A Clash of Kings, George has to have Tyrion working on this chain without ever thinking about it, hmm. lest the audience be spoiled for the Battle of Blackwater in which the chain plays a very pivotal role. It's not strictly realistic, but... You know, of course, there were clearly time gaps in between the chapters where Tyrion could be doing all these things involving the chain. And Tyrion's mind is just so busy and clever that he's really always ahead of us anyway. We're always mm-hmm. kind of a step behind Tyrion in A Clash of Kings, and we're always kind of figuring out his plan as he does them. That's one of the prime pleasures of his POV. Look no further than his next chapter, the 1-2-3 chapter, with Varys, Pycelle, and Littlefinger, in which he, he holds back how he's manipulating the counselors so we pick up on it in real time. The very end of the chapter... When Varys says, hey, what if this information reaches Cersei? And Tyrion, then Tyrion says, well, then I would know the person who told them to be my certain enemy. And then you go, oh, that's what he's been doing the whole chapter. Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. And that wouldn't be nearly as cathartic a moment if Tyrion at the beginning of the chapter said, I'm going to go out and manipulate Varys, Pycelle, and Littlefinger. <laughs> the structure is key to it. So even within this scene, George is, is sure to give us more to focus on than the chain itself. So we don't, we're not just scratching our heads going, what, what's up with this chain? We're not inclined to spoil the mystery because we're focusing on Tyrion as a character, on him working as a leader. That's really, that's what's with so much on the surface of what this scene is about is how does Tyrion handle these people, these, these, these armors? How does Tyrion function as the leader of the Lannister coalition? And again, he comes off better than Cersei, the outright tyrant who wants to have people's hands hammered if they don't do as what she says. And Tyrion notes internally that the Lannister regime is really hanging by a thread as far as public opinion is concerned, and Cersei just insists on alienating, alienating everyone and making it worse. But again, there's that, that contrast when his image comes into play, then his own lion claws come out and he starts to get less reasonable. When suddenly they're talking about how he needs to be more impressive in battle with demon horns, then he starts his, he, he bristles and his hackles go up and he threatens to throw Silorian into jail. And it's like, Tyrion, what happened just a second ago about winning hearts and minds and about how much Cersei was alienating everyone and you were going to win people over? And Tyrion does believe that, but the huge blind spot is his own image, his own ego. Whenever that gets pricked, suddenly he turns into Cersei. He turns into Tywin. He turns into just another Lannister because that's something he can't handle as much as he told Jon Snow that he could. And as I've said before... I'm just so impressed with how George layers Tyrion's downfall into, like, the corners of scenes like that early on in his rise to power in A Clash of Kings. Because by the time you get to, like, a dance with dragons, this is all of what Tyrion's character is about, is how he can't handle this. I think it's a brilliant point. I think, you know, it, what, this is going to be a strange thing for, for me to say, but I think it's so vitally important also that we have Sansa Stark as a point of view in A Clash of Kings. We have that, yeah, right, because I'm... The, the avowed Sansa hater on, on the internet, as they say, <laughs> which isn't true. But, uh, you know, but it's important that we have her perspective of, of this guy as well, because I think people could be drinking a lot of Tyrion's punch in this, in this chapter and the succeeding chapters of looking at him as the protagonist hero of the story. Yes, he is absolutely the protagonist of the story. He's not the fucking protagonist hero of the story. Uh, that's that's other characters that we, we encounter along the way. I, it's important that, that Sansa is able to look at him and be like, yeah, this there's some things that are admirable about him, but there are other aspects of him as well that are less admirable. We were talking the past couple times about Tyrion as Hand of the King versus Ned Stark as Hand of the King. This is a enduring conversation piece that you and I have had about uh, these two pivotal characters in the narrative. And I think, Emmett, I think I finally figured out what George is doing with Ned and Tyrion and why, you know, we're 
both have said in the past that Tyrion's plot work is better while his character work isn't as fulfilling, while Ned's character work is better than his plot work. And I think the reason why is which part of the storyline is in service to the other. So for Ned, for instance, in A Game of Thrones, it's more important for George to set up his characters as Ned won't be around in the long term. But his legacy, his character in Safeguarding John lives on. So all that kind of John Aaron murder mystery stuff isn't going to matter worth anything at the end of the story. I can't imagine anyone's going to be like in the epilogue for, for Dream of Spring. Ah, <laughs> we have finally figured out who murdered John Aaron. It was, you know, it's, it's not going to matter at all. But what does matter, though, is all of Ned's thoughts of Rhaegar, of Tywin, of Robert and his youth, of his quote-unquote bastard son John that all emanate from the John Aaron investigation. So all of that character stuff is kind of all flowing from the plot work that George is doing in A Game of Thrones. But for Tyrion, it's it's different. The character work is in service to his plot purposes. Tyrion, as we know from Game of Thrones Season 8, which I do trust him on this point, is an endgame character in the story. So the plot points are bounding forward, building off one another, kind of like a little tower going forward, tower of the hand if you want to call it that, building up and up and up. And that character work, the Taisha backstory, the Shay stuff, it all works in service of the plot points, which is Tyrion murdering Shay and then killing Tywin at the end of A Storm of Swords. It vaults his plot forward to A Dance of Dragons, as I was talking about, this dark place, all that, those corner areas in Tyrion's storyline of Clash of Kings all become the focal center stage for Tyrion's story in A Dance of Dragons. And again, that's all character work in A Dance with Dragons, the darker Tyrion, in service to his future plot points from The Winds of Winter, when Tyrion is going to intersect with Daenerys and likely become his Hand of the King. And that's what's going on for this scene. And I know it's a long segue to kind of read us into this next scene here, but that's what's going on in the scene we're about to talk about. The character dynamic is that Tyrion wants to go fuck Shay and utilizes a tunnel from Shatai's brothel to become incognito. But you'd be honestly forgiven if you forgot why Tyrion was even at Shatai's in the first place. Like, it's mentioned and it's, we don't even show up, Shay doesn't, doesn't even show up in the scene at all. The plot, deals are, the plot details are always more important for Tyrion than the character details. The character details are inspiring the plot de- details for Tyrion. The plot details for Ned are inspiring the character work for Ned. So, I think I finally cracked the egg on that one. I think you did. That's a great way of thinking about it and a great way of looking at how how to modulate tone within a narrative structure because with Ned you it makes sense to have the dark imagery because you have one book with Ned and he's approaching his death so of course you have the dreams about you know blue roses rotting and beds of blood and skulls and you know (laughs) all that stuff and Tyrion you're going to get to that kind of mournful desolate tone when you get to a dance with dragons because that's the appropriate place for it in his story and a clash of kings the the character stuff with Tyrion is more kind of sprightly and as you say it's humorous it's more jokey like when Tyrion says to Cersei would you expect Stannis to say yeah it's Joffrey's throne but I'm going to take it <laughs> he had to have an excuse Cersei like that's the level Tyrion's kind of head is at in in this book and the the plot work is is the more kind of the deeper darker currents because it sets up what Tyrion is willing to do as we'll get to at the Battle of the Blackwater and also you got to think, like, coming back and reread, like, all this stuff he's doing, all this political effort and gamesmanship, he's doing it all for his family, and then they turn on him. Mm-hmm. And that's the place where you get to the, the darker, deeper, emotional, kind of Ned-style currents of Tyrion's character. So I think George, I think you're totally right that George is doing different things at just different times with these characters, and that's, as you say, the root of that is because we have one book with Ned, and Tyrion is an endgame character, so these are it's just different parts in the story. So, well said, sir. But yeah, I think once uh, once we get the Shatayas, that's that's moving in a different direction. Yes, for this chapter, as as Tyrion says, the ones who the ones who look most suspicious are likely innocent. Oberyn will say the same thing of him in the Storm of Swords. Of course, that's just descended from Tolkien's fair versus foul <laughs> dynamic when it comes to Aragorn. That you know, a servant of the enemy would seem f- would a 
what does it look fairer and seem fouler? And Smell you can, nicer, yeah. Like yeah, exactly. And so you can see that same thing here. And so Tyrion is playing on that politically. He's trying to, you know, oh, if you look suspicious, you might, if you look the most suspicious, you're probably innocent. So he's leaning into his reputation by visiting a brothel to cover for what he's doing. Because people will see them and assume, oh, that's just Tyrion the imp visiting a brothel. And that covers up what he's actually doing, which is going off to see Shay. And that's how he keeps it secret for now. So I think that's an interesting case of Tyrion leaning into his rep as a, to, to try to gain advantage of it. And this whole scene kind of leans heavily into the tropes of noir, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting. It doesn't really come up elsewhere in a lot of Tyrion's chapters. You have, like, the secret identities. Everyone's trying to keep, keep my name and my title secret. You have the experienced madam character in the case of Shataya, who feels like a very noirish kind of character. You have the aura of sex and politics and danger surrounding everything. And, and the politics of sex are what connecting it all. And that that's really kind of the core of the chapter, that this question of what it means to have a sex life when you're a public figure and how your sex life becomes like worked out onto the political landscape around you. You have that right away in this chapter with Cersei and how Cersei's sex life has impacted the politics of Westeros and has launched this war. You have that with Tyrion, whose private life has become public now due to his position, so he has to go through this whole rigmarole just to see Shay. And of course, he and Varys are talking about the public ramifications of what Cersei does behind closed doors and how that how did that private thing become public? That's what they're talking about. How right. did this go from being personally relevant to politically relevant? Again, Tyrion and Varys, their conversations are always about where is power? What is it? Pin it down. Where did it happen? I want it under a glass. I want it under a microscope slide. I want to capture it, but you can't. It's like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Once yes. you start tracking it, you change the location of it. And in the middle of all that, I think it's really interesting that you get the Summer Islanders. You get Shataya and her family because they have just this very different view on <laughs> sex and sex work and public life around sex than these Westerosi do. And, you know, it's – of course, it's not like presented as purely holy angelic and this is the way we all must be or something. But it's, it's hard not to find it healthier yes. than the sexual dynamics between the Lannisters and how those have exploded onto the landscape. I, do you think it's fair to say in this chapter the way George is structuring it that the Summer Islanders are being shown as like the relatively sane and reasonable ones when it comes to these matters? I, I think they are and I think it more reflects his – you know, honestly, I think it more reflects George's view of, of sexuality. You know, if you kind of look at the way that he – talks about sure talks about it in in his own life and this is not and you know obviously death to the author and all that sort of stuff but there there are certainly aspects of of a song of ice and fire which reflect more george's perspective on 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 what is a good and healthy sexuality uh and and i think like there 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 are certainly some troubling aspects of course you know as they talk about like they take the the girls as soon as they flower and put them in the pillow house you're like yeah i don't, I don't know about putting like a 12 or 13 year old in 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 a, in a brothel that that feels like a little little uh bad hashtag problematic but you know they're the overall perspective and attitude i think is is healthier it's more in, honest as opposed yeah. to like tywin constantly covering it up and hiding things like even if the con the sexual conduct itself raises an eyebrow or two, part of me is like it's it's a much more honest and forthright culture. Westeros does worse behind closed doors, right? So it's not like Summer Island is is where they have it all figured out, but I think they're they seem to have taken a step forward. There's an aspect of it that's that's very much in contrast to a Westeros, which you know has legalized prostitution, but also has a kind of repressed sexual ideas behind some of the major characters and you mm-hmm. have some really terrible horrible stuff that's going on with a number of these characters behind closed doors like Robert and Cersei's relationship Tywin's relationships as well as we're going to find out and Tyrion as well too as, as we're also going to find out very much in A Dance with Dragons so the, these so I think it's it's healthy more to be more open I think at the same time this repression that Westeros represents is 
really bad for the for the characters like Tyrion, like characters like Tywin, like characters like Cersei as well. Uh, but I think you are also completely right that the Summer Islanders also represent a somewhat idealized view on George R. R. Martin's sure. type, and we shouldn't necessarily treat this as like his idea of what real world sexuality should necessarily yeah, be, and yeah, more yeah. like this is my ideal in my head of like. Right. What, right. y- y- I'm not being perfectly articulate, but you get what I'm saying. Right? It's, it's, it's like it's, a philosophical it's, construct. It's, it, exactly. It's there to be a, in dialectic with the, the, the Lannister men's sexuality. Like, these are the two poles of how right. you can be about sex. That's that's what I'm trying to get at here. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That is a dialectical construct in George's part. And the ideal. And for, for him, anyways. You know, not me. I'm, I'm very much monogamous. But anyways, all that to say, uh, I was trying to think of an interesting transition here. So we... We 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 go from the different poles of repressed sexuality versus the open sexuality of of the Summer Islanders to Varas, who has no sexuality whatsoever because he's he's a eunuch. Bam, got it, man. You had that great transition earlier. I had a um, <laughs> not as good one, but that's that's okay. And we finally come to my favorite part of the chapter, which is always going to be in these Tyrian chapters, the Varys Tyrian conversations. And you know, I, I have to ask you know a couple open ended questions like, what is Varys doing here? What is his goal in helping Tyrion and communicating these things? to Tyrion and what is Tyrion's goal and what is he hoping to get out of these conversations with with Varys you, you know as I alluded to in my earlier as I alluded to in the intro I, I think the key goal for Varys here if I could theorize for a second is he's hoping to turn Tyrion into an asset how he's doing that I, I, I think there's a couple of ways that he tries to do that he tries to create the illusion of trust between the two with information sharing I think he also tries trying to force Tyrion to think critically, building off the nature of power conversations they had in Tyrion too, by hinting at how power is really working and functioning in King's Landing without, you know, outright confirming things like who built the tunnel, who leaked Stannis to the information about the incest. And what are the lessons that Varys is hoping to impart to Tyrion? Well, I think, you know, this kind of what we were talking about before, it's kind of Tywin-esque, but Varys is essentially telling Tyrion to keep his paramour hidden that Shade's exposure will both endanger her and weaken Tyrion politically. So we have this whole idea that we have in, in Westeros that, you know, if you are openly frequently frequenting sex workers, you're going to appear weak and you're going to potentially lose political power and political capital by having that exposed about yourself. As Varys is going to say, Varys is going to say two interesting things to Tyrion in this conversation, where he talks about the king's hand, where he says the tunnel was dug for another king's hand, whose honor would not allow him to enter such a house openly. Shataya has closely guarded the knowledge of his existence. Then later on, he says dwarves are not so common a sight as children, so a child is what they will see, a boy in an old cloak on his father's horse going about his father's business, though it would be best if he came here most often by night. So again, what Varys is attempting to show Tyrion is like, hey, look, you know, Westerosi sexuality might suck, but these are the rules of the game that we have to play in here. Don't try and make yourself less powerful by getting exposed as frequenting sex workers. So go by night and use the tunnel if you have to. If you, if, if because you know the other aspect too is the honor of the the honor of the hands as it was at stake. I think that's speaking to something the way that power flows, the way that some of the things that Clinton was talking about a couple weeks ago. Power can flow through honor as a character like Tywin Lannister has built his entire reputation off of off of honor. So, and then we also have to talk about, too, about the the implication that Littlefinger was the one who told Stannis about what was going on with Cersei. And what is Varys attempting to do there? Well, I, th- I think Varys is urging Tyrion to be both wary of Littlefinger and maybe possibly pretty pleased to dispose of him. And, you know, this, this quote comes from George R. R. Martin from 2016. And I think I've read this a couple of times before, but to, to reemphasize, George was asked about Varys and Tyrion's... <laughs> 
George was asked about Varys and Littlefinger's relationship. He says that they're adversarial. Both of them know a lot about the other one, including some very damaging things. So they're in essentially a stalemate because each one knows that if he revealed what he knows about the other one, then the other one would reciprocate and they would both be destroyed. So they're locked in a certain stalemate, I think. I think Littlefinger has a better idea of what Varys wants than Varys has an idea of what Littlefinger wants. Littlefinger's an agent of chaos who likes to be unpredictable and succeeds in that. So I, I think it's possible Varys is viewing Tyrion as a kind of a wildcard piece in the game that could potentially break the stalemate. You know, Varys didn't reveal this information to Tyrion. How? I don't know how he came across that. Maybe you could get rid of him, Tyrion, because you have the power. Because Tyrion has a bit of a mandate from Tywin, as we found out at the end of A Game of Thrones, where Tywin says, I blame those jacket names to the council. Our friend Peter, the venerable Grand Maester, that cockless wonder Lord Varys. What sort of counselor are they giving get Joffrey when he lurches from one folly to the next? Then later on in that passage, he pointed a finger at Tyrion's face. If Cersei cannot curb the boy, you must. And if these counselors are playing us false, Tyrion knew. <sighs> Spikes, he sighed. Heads. Walls. Sadly, for Varys, Tyrion, Sansa, every living human being and domesticated animal in Westeros, Tyrion will make the calculation that Littlefinger is too important a piece to remove later on to Clash of Kings. Ironically, this is not a view that Littlefinger is going to share, as Tyrion, as Var- Littlefinger is going to attempt to murder the shit out of Tyrion at the end of a Clash of Kings, and then will frame Tyrion for Joffrey's murder at the end of Storm of Swords. Meanwhile, Tyrion's thinking that he's playing the same game, making Varys his asset. But the problem is that Varys is keeping Tyrion in the dark as to what his real game is until basically book five, maybe even beyond to book six. Sure, Varys is going to help Tyrion to prevent Renly or Stannis from taking the Iron Throne, all the while knowing the truth behind Joffrey's parentage. And when the time is ripe, he, Varys, like Littlefinger before him, will reveal the truth about Joffrey, uh, Tommen's parentage. Right, Tommen's parentage at the end of A Dance of Dragons. So they're not playing the same game. Tyrion is cynically propping up his own family because he bears the last name of Lannister and can, you know, gain some status, some fortune, and serving his family out. Varys, though, is will keep Joffrey in power now so that the, quote, good of the realm will be served by preventing Stannis or Renly from taking the Iron Throne. Because Varys, you know, he's quite a bit more idealistic than, he's, than he seems in some of these passages. But at the same time, he's also a little bit pragmatic, too. He doesn't want his prepared prince, that is Aegon VI, a.k.a. Young Griff, a.k.a. the Blackfire Kid, to face the one true king in the form of Stannis Baratheon. So he's going to do everything he can to prop Joffrey up. And when the time comes, he's going to make sure that Joffrey comes right on down. I think this gets at what you were talking about earlier, about how George is using Ned and Tyrion differently. And that in, in Ned's storyline, he was trying to pin down so exactly everyone around him and, and mm. trying to make them on his camp or not. And that was fitting to his story because it was leading to doom and death and nothing's more final than that. But Tyrion is just at the beginning of his arc and is going to evolve in so many potential directions as he goes. And so all his all his conversations with Varys are much more... Uh, much more kept in uncertainty and fog about the mm. direction Varus is taking. And you, you get much stronger sense of Varus keeping his options open. Where Varus, with Ned, you can tell Varus is just like looking at Ned like you're, you're going down the, pretty much the <laughs> entire time. And yeah, it's, 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 it works as in terms of George building on the politics and making them more complex. That as you say, Varus and Tyrion are, are fundamentally playing different games. But for a moment, it, it looks like there's a potential alignment between their interests. But it's a, it's, it's a temporary alignment. And as the series goes on, it looks more and more like they're, they're eventually going to end up on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think it's a really interesting balance George goes for. And it's, it's very clearly his way of expressing the, the big themes. It really, really clear on Riri that 
George is building these early Tyrion chapters around conversations with Varys at the end. Like they all end this way with convers yes. like uh, like Varys going to Tyrion. Like, what did you learn this chapter? Like he's the kindly <laughs> man asking Arya to come back to the House of Black and White with three things that she's learned. Like that's what Varys is doing. He's saying to Tyrion. Are you getting it? Are you getting how politics works? And I love the point you're making that he's giving Tyrion these veiled lessons without answers and saying, hoping that Tyrion will put the pieces together himself and reach the conclusion that Varys thinks is the right one to see if he can be a worthwhile asset. And I love, yeah, it's just the great sense of all these political narratives rubbing together. Like Tyrion's at the center of his story, but then in Varys' story, it's like you zoom out and Tyrion is just this one little part that he's Mm -hmm. cultivating over here. And I just, it's almost like you get vertigo. And I just love that sense of political narratives working together. It's so much fun. Yeah. That this is one of the reasons why I love Clash more than a Game of Thrones is that, mm-hmm. that density, yeah. The density, but also it's the, the, it calls readers, it, it draws readers in because readers are like, oh, I want to know who built the tunnel to the, to Shatayas. I want to know who actually, how, how did Stannis actually find out about the incest, right? I mean, this is one of those severely, I want to say, a severely underexamined elements of the story, which I'm sure we can have a conversation on at some point down the road. But, you know, in, in a Game of Thrones, when, when Varys and Ned have that fateful conversation, I want to say in Eddard 7, you know, Varys is very direct with Ned, like, your friend is a fucking fool and he was about to die if you hadn't inadvertently convinced him not to play play a part in the melee. With Tyrion, it's much more fun. Varys is like, maybe Littlefinger had a part to play with it. Who was this Hand of the King? I mean, I was. there's only been a couple Hands of the King that I've been exposed to in my time as Master of Whisperers. So just take your pick about which one it actually was. <laughs> that That's fun. And I think that's part of the fun of this chapter is is the whole dynamic between Varys and, and, and well, Varys and Littlefinger, but Varys and, and Tyrion. And that's it. it the, the fun of it is, is it's inviting readers into the narrative and inviting readers into the mystery. And that's one of the, the strengths of George's writing is that readers get so engaged with the topics and get so engaged with theory crafting because George makes it fun to get engaged in theory crafting and engaged in these topics. He's even more minor topics like who built the, the, the tunnel of the hand of the kings we're going to be talking about here momentarily for sure. Well said, sir. So I think that takes us out of our adept section for Clash of Kings Tyrion 3 and takes us into foreshadowing and groundwork. What do we got here, sir? Oh man, we've got a we've got a bunch of interesting stuff that's both for a Clash of Kings and a little bit on. So we'll start at the very end of the narrative. So we have Pycelle, of course, being like, I don't trust that Varus. He's always skulking around and I don't know about this guy. Well, yeah, I think you should be a little bit suspicious of him, Pycelle, because as we're going to find out, he's going to turn out to be the smartest, question mark, person in the small council of, of Cersei Lannister when she assumes her queen regency in a feast for crows. And that's going to lead to him being crossbowed by Vars for being, I guess, too effective <laughs> at the small council at the very end of the narrative. So yes, Pycelle has every reason to mistrust Vars and that repeat beat that George utilizes here as being like, yes, this is leading to an ultimate conclusion of, and a finale for Pycelle at the business end of Vars's crossbow. It is an ironic honor, I suppose, that he ends up just competent enough for Varys to bother to kill him. Right. And yes, in, in the da- last time we see him alive in the Dance with Dragons epilogue, he's begging for more security, but mm, doesn't get it. And I and I, I do love that. Yeah, Pycelle ends up the smartest person on that council after being the dumbest person on this council. Right. That just that's just a perfect way of capturing the the collapse of the small council as an institution. That mm-hmm. Pycelle stays still, and the, the council just kind of collapses all around him. <laughs> And I, I also just think it's hilarious that this pays off. Pycelle's mistrust of Varys pays off not with Pycelle like figuring out that Varys was behind something, but just with Varys killing him. That mm-hmm. perf- I just think that wonderfully captures how how much 
less important to character Pycelle is than Varus at the end of the day. But that's great because Pycelle thinks he's just as important. So that, that pomposity and pretentiousness is what makes, is what makes Pycelle so unbearable, but also just so much fun as a character. I totally agree there. So another little bit of foreshadowing we have set up here for the Battle of Blackwater. Tyrion refusing the demon helmet will mean that come that giant battle, he'll be wearing but a Lannister half-helm. And that will lead, of course, to the loss of his nose when Mandon Moore attempts to kill him. Which, again, is a great example of how George just weaves Tyrion's uh, self-image and self-doubt into what happens to him and how it always ends up sabotaging him. That, like, if, of course he doesn't want this demon helmet because he feels like everyone already thinks he's a demon and he doesn't want right. to present that image and he hates that. On the other hand, ironically, that would have saved his life and, say, prevented the loss of the nose, which just enhances the demon imagery and everyone <laughs> looking at him like a monster. It's like Tyrion can't win, and I think that's just a wonderful... It's it's the structure of tragedy, right, where you make your, your relatable, weak human decisions, and that makes ends up making your flaw even worse. And then you make other weak decisions, and then it gets even worse, and then down the spiral you go. And George does such a great job of that with Tyrion. Right. It's, it's so much fun, too, when you have to look at, like, how Tyrion starts to conceptualize this idea of being the demon monkey man, right? Yes. In this in this chapter, he's kind of like Riley being like, oh, well, I'm wearing a demon mask. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy, right? Let's laugh about that one. But later on, he's like, yes, the people are going to think I'm a demon monkey man. And then at the end, when he's on trial, he's like, I saved you all and you all. I wish I had enough poison for all of you guys. Like, this, this is all feeding into that that larger narrative both of you know obviously for a clash of kings where Tyrion losing his nose and becoming a demon but also Tyrion starting to embrace that side of himself too where he where he thinks of himself as the hero protagonist of the story then by dance with dragons he's looking at himself as kind of the villain as the actual demon monkey of the story and that's going to have some significant consequences come the winds of winter when him and danny intersect i think that's a great point it's it's obviously Tyrion does heroic actions and villainous actions throughout the series but George is always calling calling it to attention, you know, the shadow on the wall. How does Tyrion yes. think of himself and how does that change his actions and thus how he is seen by other people? And that's that's a great part of his character. I agree there. Tyrion's so much fun, man. I can't. Uh, the nice thing is we got a bunch of Tyrion chapters coming up. for We sure do. Podcast. So much fun. <laughs> so on Solorian himself, remember that guy? He was that kind of shit talking asshole noble guy <laughs> who was like, I'm not going to make a change for you. I'll make you the demon monkey helmet. Well, it's interesting, right? Because maybe he was suggesting this because he had ulterior noble, noble question mark motives in, in doing this. Because as we're going to find out in Tyrion's 11th chapter in Clash of Kings, Solorian was allegedly part of something else. Here's the quotation. It appeared that these antlermen had armed several hundred followers to seize the old gate once the battle was joined and admit the enemy to the city. Among the names on the list was the master armor Solorian. What? I suppose this means I won't be getting that terrifying helm with the demon horns, Tyrion complained <laughs> as he scrawled the order for the man's arrest. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you guys have, um, those of you who are listening, have ever played the game Shadows Over Camelot. It's this kind of fun board game that I, I play on vacation with my, my in-laws. And uh, there's there's a character you could potentially play in the game called the Traitor, which is you're ostensibly working on the side of the good guys, right? But the entire time what you're supposed to be doing when you're playing the Traitor character is kind of go on these useless fetch quests and do these kind of worthless things that all kind of do these worthless tasks and just try to make yourself a nuisance to everyone else on the board. So I, I kind of wonder whether like Solorian is kind of playing the traitor character here, doing this useless quest of making this great helmet for Tyrion as opposed to making the Iron Chain, which is going to prevent Stannis Baratheon, which is actually going to destroy most of Stannis Baratheon's fleet at the end of the Battle of the Blackwater. So I, I love this kind of uh, 
these small little things that we find in a clash of kings i don't know if solorian was actually a part of the antler men or even if the antler men as a faction even existed or whether it was something that varas used in order to kind of wipe out little fingers peep goons that are in the in the city it's all this is why clash is so much fun there's so there's so many games that work that beyond the narrative that are maybe subtext maybe not maybe this is actually reality maybe it's not reality it's so much fun I agree. There's so many conflicting shadows on the wall, so many layers, because, yeah, you could say, oh, Tyrion, this is comeuppance. Like, Solorian, you pissed this guy off, you threatened him when you shouldn't have, and that drove him right into Stannis' arms. That's the lesson. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, no, that's not the lesson. This guy has nothing to do with that. This is just Varus getting one over on people. Like, it could it be one, could it be the other, and you can have, you can hold both in your head at the same time and think about them in interesting ways, and just what a great gift that is as a writer to be able to just suggest both and resist the temptation to just reveal one, but to go no, the ambiguity makes us more powerful. I'm going to suggest both. That's just a great move. So in speaking of just these kind of layers of, of secondary characters built into these major arcs, sadly for Tyrion, and especially Alayaya, Cersei's spies were indeed following Tyrion, and at least one of them entered the brothel and found out that Tyrion and Alayaya were spending time together. So later on, Cersei sends the Kettleblack brothers to capture and beat Alayaya. She's imprisoned to ensure that Tyrion doesn't harm Tommen. And that is just a, a perfect example of how... Again, this how it works when you have this powerful figure who acts out their private sex life in public. Other people get swept up in it. Other people get involved and other people pay the price. And Tyrion is going to find out about that in the Storm of Swords when he finds out what happens to Aliyah. And we see that in Tywin's story as well. And, and, and multiple characters across the series where because you come with power, wherever you make yourself vulnerable... It's not even that you end this, you end up hurt necessarily, but the, these people who don't have the same protections as you end up hurt. And that's, that's a lesson that Tyrion has yet to fully internalize. Part of me wonders if Penny exists as a character in large mm-hmm. part to finally make him get that. Yes. But Aliyah is definitely part of that story. Right. And I think like that goes back to that. Jorah Mormont quote when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones mm-hmm. how is it actually going to impact the small folk the people that are having to suffer the consequences we, we saw that in Arya's last chapter in Arya 4 where the High Lords are playing burn the burn the riverlands from the god's eye to the black water do these horrible terrible things so that we can win win this war when you look at what's actually happening when all these people are impacted by by the games that the High Lords are playing we're seeing that they're kind of crushed underfoot we see aliyah here being beaten by the kettle blacks and then whipped again by tywin's at under by tywin's order as we find out in a storm of swords this is kind of george's critique of of looking at the game of thrones is simply like a game to be played if like mm-hmm. one person makes one move one person makes the other move at the high level the high strategic level but when you get right down to it it's people that are suffering as a result of these moves that are being made by these nobles in the story perfectly said i think that's the George always wants to have you know that and see that cost underneath. He, you saw that with Tyrion too, and talking about the 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 babe at the brothel and how Tyrion has his own men who would do the same thing. And that George isn't dwelling on that in the Tyrion chapters because he's dwelling on it in the Arya chapters. That's the flip side to it. But he always wants to have that present in the Tyrion chapters, and it's just haunting because it's just happening just around the corner and just behind the scenes. And occasionally it pops up in Tyrion's face, and he has to deal with it. And that's that's uh, it's an important part of his character. And as we've been saying, about a lot a lot of aspects of Tyrion's character in these earlier books, it becomes much more prominent in the later books. When in A Dance with Dragons, when Tyrion goes to Essos and sees and is just kind of dumped in the entire world that works like that. 
So that about wraps us up for our foreshadowing groundwork section. So our, for our theory discussion this week, we sometimes have a analysis discussion. This time we actually have a fun little theory. And the, the question that I have for you, Emmett, is which mysterious hand of the king by the name of Tywin Lannister built the tunnel to Shatai's <laughs> brothel? And why is it Tywin Lannister? Yes, this is one of, I think, my favorite theories in A Song of Ice and Fire. I don't even really consider it a theory. This is one of that near, nearly verges on factory because of how well it fits the characters and details involved. I am firmly convinced that the hand of the king being referred to, whose whose honor prevented him from visiting a brothel openly so he built the tunnel, that that hand was in fact Tywin Lannister. As we learn at the end of Tyrion's storyline in A Storm of Swords, Tywin was sleeping with Shay. He shared in private the predilection for sex workers that he so publicly scorned in Tyrion. So it fits perfectly, therefore, that his quote-unquote honor would lead him to build this private access tunnel in, into Shatayas. And it, it, it lines up so nicely with Tyrion emerging from another tunnel into into uh, Tywin Solar to kill him at the end of Storm of Swords. And sometimes those two tunnels get conflated. I've done that myself. Those, those are not the same tunnel. This tunnel does not go into the Red Keep. This tunnel lets Tyrion out a, a, a well away from Shatayas where he can go on to Shays privately. The tunnel in the Red Keep is a different tunnel, but they are... They feel like the, the same network in terms of this is the, the spider web that Varus uses to move people and ideas around for the various Lannister men as needed. And, it, it, you know, we even see this a girl, uh, Mary, Mari, with gold hair and green eyes in the brothel, hint, hint. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the building's dominant color scheme is Lannister red and yellow. Those colors pop up a couple times all over the brothel. It's George just weaving it in that this is a Tywin place. This is a Lannister place. Moreover, even in terms of logistics, if you look at the people who are hands of the king and the time period, it would make sense to for this to work out with Shataya's establishment, given how long she's been at King's Landing. Really, the only other plausible candidate is John Aaron, which I, I sincerely doubt it, that, that, that this, this was his bag. It really feels like Tywin was the only one in that time span that makes sense. And just in general, this suits the Tyrion and Tywin relationship so well that it has to be true. That mm-hmm. So often we see with Tyrion and Tywin that they think of themselves as just sexually opposite, but in fact they're the same and mm-hmm. can't deal with it. And this is just part of that, that both Lannister men going down the same tunnel Again, hint, hint, imagery-wise, that symbolizes their mutual sex with Shay, that she is, quote, the same tunnel that they are going down by having sex with her. Mm. Everything Tyrion touches, Tywin touches, and vice versa. Gold forever turning to shit in their hands. It's always They're always just brought back together. And I, I think that's... I, I, I gotta think that's what George is doing here. Because you know, it's, it's the kind of world-building detail to throw away. It could easily be in reference to nothing, but... With Tyrion and Tywin and sex specifically, I don't think there's any detail George is, is just letting go because it's so crucial to both their characters. I 100% agree. I mean, it's it's to me, it's very obvious that it's Tywin Lannister was the hand who built the tunnel uh, in both ways, both the tunnel to Shatayas as well as the tunnel to Jay Tunnel. Okay, I guess using that. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, again, like the the tunnel as woman's vagina imagery is very like you know it's very tired and old fashioned, but it's 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 a constantly reoccurring one, and I think it's definitely something George is going for here. It's it's the North by Northwest joke where the train goes into the tunnel at the end. It's an obvious sex joke, but I think that's definitely what George is going for. I, I agree, and I think like too when we're looking at the way that George is constructing these major reveals, when we get the scene at the end of a Storm of Swords and Tyrion's arc, where Tyrion comes comes on Shay being at Tywin's chambers in, in the hand of the king in, in the Tower of the Hand, mm-hmm. it, we can look back at this and be like, oh, now it suddenly makes sense. Like Tywin's image, the one that he presented to the entire world of keeping your sexuality private and having kind of having this austere view of mm-hmm. sex and of sex work and 
it's all speaking to who Tywin actually is as a person. And when we look at this this tunnel that he constructs here, it's speaking very much to Tywin Lannister as a person who's very much concerned with his honor. I agree that John Aaron doesn't fit. I agree that some of the other minor hands of the king that Varys might have been exposed to, a lot of them didn't have time to like build a tunnel, right? Aerys' I mean, like, hands were around for like a few weeks each after Tywin right. left, and definitely wasn't John Connington, so... Right, and, and the, the, the stuff we get from... From Lysa about John Aaron doesn't read to me like some sort of like sex addict or, or anything like that. It seems like that was uh, most that he was mostly a, a workaholic who did not uh, really focus on his wife's uh, happiness. To, to there's a reason he detriment. there's a reason he got along with Stannis. Both of them seems like they, those guys were much more interested in their job than in than in their sex lives to the detriment of everyone. Yeah, it's it's it it just doesn't make sense that it's anyone but Tywin Lannister, and you know that's. That's good. I think it's it's good work in foreshadowing, again, the events from the end of A Storm of Swords. It's showing good work in Tyrion's, in Varys' attempted instruction of Tyrion to be like, be more like your father in the way that you do these things. Don't bring public shame upon yourself. Don't impinge the honor, don't impunge the honor of, of your house. It's all bullshit, obviously, as we were talking about before in terms of how sex work and how sexuality is, is dealt with by Westerosi nobles. But at the same time, there is that that is those are the boundaries of the game that that Tyrion is, is engaged in, unfortunately, for, for everyone involved in this. That's true. And that's what makes it interesting that Varys is, is trying to communicate that to Tyrion, keep this under wraps, be more like Tywin. But that's because Varys is so comfortable with the idea of completely subsuming your own identity to the cause mm-hmm. and the game. And maybe Tyrion doesn't want to do that. Maybe he shouldn't have to do that. Maybe that's not necessarily the only way to be a man or a Lannister man. And it's not even that Tywin's model is... I mean, it's very hypocritical, but I understand the reasoning behind Tywin's model in isolation. The problem is reconciling Tywin's model with Tyrion's model. That's what's impossible. That's what you really can't do, is, is have those two work together. And that's what ultimately becomes impossible by the end of A Storm of Swords, is that these two halves of the whole can't work together. And as we've said... What makes it such a great tragedy is that Tyrion understands, Tyrion recognizes himself and his father more than he ever has at the moment he pulls the trigger. That's what makes it so devastating. You can see George, have they're just circling each other at this point. George is just building to the moment when they're going to have that face off. It's so good. It is so good. And this is why this theory is a fun minor theory, but I think it speaks very much to both the characters and personalities of both Tyrion and Tywin showing us what their end game for their relationship is going to be. So I think that about wraps us up for this episode of A Clash Kings Tyrion 3. Thank you so much for listening to us. I, if you guys, guys couldn't tell, both Evan and I were dealing with a little bit of head colds here. So hope you guys, we have not been too unlistenable as we've, we've gone through this episode itself. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcast. Check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. You can also find me at poorquentin.com where I uh, just released my long-awaited essay on Euron Greyjoy on his, and his Eldritch Apocalypse. So check that out if you have not already. Please, please check it out because it is amazing. I have now read it three times now, so I'm. Uh, oh shucks, Jeff. Well, I've I've, I've reread I've reread a song of ice and fire seven times, so I think I at least have to give you the full seven <laughs> before we're, we're well, through. Well, thank this. you. It's it's, it's it, honestly just all shtick aside. It's it's an excellent analysis of of Euron Greyjoy as a character. You're not going to find anything better than that in 
any venue in the Song of Ice and Fire meta world and any of the analysts. So great work, man. I, I, Thanks. I, I, it, I'm, I'm so it, proud of you. Thank you, buddy. It was my attempt to uh, provide the ultimate Euron analysis. So I hope people enjoy it on that basis. Yeah, I really hope so, too. We will link that in the show notes if you guys are interested. You can find me at Brendan Beavish on Twitter, Brendan Beavish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to give a shout out and thank you to our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lord Timothy Yu, Sir Courtenay, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose, and Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Yes, thank you, High Lords and Ladies, very much love all your titles. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings Brand 2, in which the Northmen left behind by Rob's camp come to Winterfell to um, make demands. Yes, I was about to say they're going to do all these noble and wonderful things, but they're actually not going to. From Benedy, of course, and we will be joined for this very political chapter by our frequent, our most frequent, I believe, guest, Lord Stephen Atwell. This is a very underrated part of the series, I feel. These early brand chapters in Clash that do a lot of great political work, not only for his character, but for the North. And Stephen has written wonderfully and eloquently about the kind of political undercurrents going on in this particular chapter, Clash of Kings Brand 2. So we knew we had to have him on for it, and we're, we're very excited to have him back. It's going to be so much fun. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys last week for watching our live stream episode. Again, that is available if you guys want to watch. Let's talk about RE4 for the next hour of content. And we will see you guys next week.